Hello and welcome to the Exponential Investor Friday podcast. My name is Boaz Shoshan. I'm not normally the person who hosts these. However, Sam Volkering is currently away on some paternity leave. Uh, and I'm joined today by your normal guest, which would be Kit Winder. Kit, however, has, uh, has recently had a big bout of the Wu flu and is recovering. But Kit, you're feeling a bit better now, right? Uh, yes, I, I finally on the mend. Um after a visit from the NHS, which was a bit of a surprise, um, I called 111 and they said someone will be in touch. Uh, and an ambulance rocked up a few hours later. Um, so I was very impressed, to be honest, and grateful. Um, and yeah, they gave me some antibiotics for a, a secondary infection. And yeah, feeling better now. So that's good. Well, I'm sure uh, all the regular listeners will be very pleased to hear that. Um, I'm, I'm sure uh, an ambulance visit isn't the uh, isn't the normal procedure, or not that I'd be I'd be familiar with. But uh, I mean, are you still self isolating? Yes, yeah, so day fourteen now, self isolating because I think I'm still COVID positive um, with temperature and fever and stuff. Um, so <laughs> tonight. Uh, we're recording on the Wednesday tonight will be my third England game that I watch on my own in the flat which I can tell you is quite a bizarre experience on our best run that I've sort of ever seen in my lifetime um, but yes football and tennis has been sort of the story of the last two weeks of my life more than finance. Well, at least you've had some decent entertainment to uh, last you through the lockdowns. I mean, it's pretty, it must be very strange to be watching uh, watching the games like that by yourself. But, uh, you know, it'd be better that they were on rather than they weren't, I think. I Definitely. Mean, have you been, uh, in terms of uh, what you've been looking at and the markets kit, is there anything that's caught your eye over the past week or so? Well, no, I, I admit the whole of last week, I was just totally knocked out and I, I didn't look at anything and I switched back on uh monday morning and tuesday and i was sort of looking and thinking the market's not really rolled over i mean sometimes uh, what i was thinking was you can get very caught up when you're looking every day very intently as we do in some smaller things when you take a, a whole week off as i did and switch back on monday i thought oh well all the index all the indices are sort of in the same place gold gold hasn't moved much oil seems to be climbing a bit higher but it always was you know, when you're so dialed in, those things seem very significant. The oil is 77 today rather than 74 last Wednesday. But yeah, it seemed to me as though the world sort of was carrying on much as it as it had been for the last few months. Yeah, it's funny. A, a reader recently wrote in and uh, uh, just made the comment that the price of gold uh, on his wedding anniversary this year was exactly the same price as it was last year. So it's, uh, you know, gold has retraced in, uh, you know, an entire 12 months of activity. So, you know, if you just woken up a year later, it would have been as though nothing had changed, even though, of course, it's been very volatile. There is something I, I'd like to um, quiz you on a little bit, uh, Kit, which comes to comes back to energy. You did mention how oil's been having a, a relatively good time. I was wondering what you made of the whole, uh, the OPEC, um, the, the sort of uh, OPEC tension that's going on between Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Uh, and there's this interesting uh, dynamic where fracking doesn't seem to be coming back online very fast, even though oil is, uh, is in the $70 level. There was, uh, I was speaking to John Butler uh, earlier this week on our South Bank live show. And uh, I, I, I was just 
thinking of the biases everyone has, the sort of common knowledge game that investors have these days where days where everyone knows that everyone knows that if the oil price gets high, then all of the frackers in Texas will suddenly turn on the taps and there'll be this grand deluge of oil. And this is something that's pervaded the investment space pretty much for the last pretty much all the, the last decade, I would say now, because now we're now it's 2011 uh, is that we're a decade on from and the, the grand oil boom we saw there. After the, the collapse of oil in those in the early 2010s, uh, ever since then, it seems to me that everybody just believes that uh, fracking is just going to keep oil prices low. And yet here we are, and oil's in the 70s, and the fracking rigs in, in the US aren't anywhere near uh, as high as they were just in, you know, just in uh, the beginning of 2020, let alone, um, you know, in the 2019 kind of era. And, you know, it's as though somebody's thrown an oil rally and the frackers haven't shown up, which is what everyone has been expecting them to do for the last for the last decade, really. Uh, and I wonder what you made of that, because this ties into a lot of your your work when it comes to energy transition, things like that. What's your take on the whole the whole dynamic there? Yeah, so that is an interesting point. And um, I think the story with the frackers that I've been looking at for the last couple of years is is all to do with the financing and they basically have had 10 years of very very easy financing this you know the american pride in their fracking revolution spread into the minds of the financiers and they thought yes we don't want a return on our capital and we'll just give it to them and so they they flooded the sector with money and they never really got any back because the the economics of of shale in america were really bad actually so all of these companies were just losing money year after year and uh that has sort of run out of road so somewhat ironically um the investment community has really lost patience with shale and fracking in america that was in 2020 when all the you know when everything came crashing down with coronavirus they thought right well this is it you know we can't just lose money for in this sector forever um and so i think you know in that true human psychological counter cyclical way just at the wrong time they've decided that they're not going to um going to finance the fracking anymore so i think that will happen but the if there's a reason why it's being slow to come back online it's because they are very cash starved and they're struggling to get access to the capital markets in the in the incredibly easy way that they used to because there there's a bit of a sort of you know the hands of the the bankers have been burned just one too many times so they're just going to need to see a not higher oil prices, I think maybe for a little bit longer before they think, okay, we can start putting money back into this sector. It's like when, I mean, we, we would talk about it in solar where, which had a big bust in 2011 and it just takes people a long time to go back to a sector when it lost them a lot of money. Um, And I think that'll be what's happening a little bit um, in, in fracking. Yeah, once burned, twice shy. Though, you I mean you, the amount of money that has been ploughed into shale is, uh, you know, as you as you alluded to, has been quite enormous. It's like the the bankers have been. It's not once burned, twice shy. It's like you know, twenty times burned, suddenly shy after all that. But sure, and it's worth pointing out, you know, the the brutal drawdown we had last year when it came to uh, oil demand. Uh, you know, it costs a lot of money to actually turn oil wells off as well as turn them back on again. And I think that uh, just the cost of doing that last year has uh, made 
the as you say sort of pro-cyclical this the response that we're going to get so instead of it uh, coming back online when demand is there it's only going to come back on the online once demand is really really high uh, and that's when we might see a big flood of it i think oil is going to hit like hundred dollars this year which uh, has kept me still in in the minority so far i am somewhat biased there as i'm from from an oil town uh, but interestingly do you think um well, interesting. If we're making a parallel then to sort of the 2011 era and last great oil boom, Kit, I mean, do you think uh, this year will be a grand, uh, grand revolution for solar? Because just looking at like the TAN ETF, you know, the uh, the solar ETF, it's had an in, like just quite an extraordinary uh, 12 months, really. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's a there's a great dichotomy in the solar industry where what's best for investors in the solar companies might not necessarily be what's best for the fight against climate change. And then this is where you find out where people really stand, I guess. But uh, the inflation debate, which is something I know we love to talk about, Boaz, comes into this now because, um, you know, if we're going to start seeing some inflation in the, in the core, in the raw materials for a solar panel, for example, like a, a polysilicon, or some of the metals and copper, obviously, as we have done. Um, we might, I mean, solar panels, I think, have fallen in cost by 85% over the last decade and 99% over the last 40 years. So the, the, the cost decline has been driving the incredible build out in a sort of chicken and egg fashion. And that is, you know, one of the most optimistic things about the energy transition is the falling costs of these, these crucial technologies, solar, wind and batteries. But as inflation starts kicking with those raw materials, I think uh, the last time I checked, the, the first few months of this year saw the price of some solar panels uh, on the market rising by up to 15%, which is a completely new phenomenon for that market. And if you're Joe Biden or Greta Thunberg, you're pretty worried because you know, one of the things that has been relied on is the falling cost of solar, encouraging people to build the plants and um, it being cheaper than coal and gas for generating electricity is a, a crucial economic point for the build out of renewables. Um, but ironically, if you're a solar panel maker, um, falling costs, which have been just decimating your business model and decimating your margins for a decade, if those can sort of plateau or or even start rising a little bit, then you can start to maybe expand margins or be become more profitable. So there could be good opportunities investing in solar companies. There could be some challenges there in terms of the scale that can be achieved for the build out. Um, and there's just that slight pull and push uh, battle between inflation uh, and between sort of the profitability of the solar companies and the, the benefits to the environment. Could you expand a bit on that for us, please? Because that is a very interesting point. Because we, when you think of renewable energy companies, you often think that the, the businesses themselves are aligned with the political interests in uh, reducing emissions, etc., etc., etc. And of course, they are, however, just businesses, so they're just trying to make some money. Could you go into what you mean by that when it comes to the businesses, uh, you know, wanting to make a load, wanting to make a bundle of money? Uh, and how that can actually go against what the government wants when it comes to rolling out solar. So um, back to 2011, that sort of first boom and bust cycle, 
it started in Europe and Germany, which subsidized solar first and started building the plants. And Europe built a manufacturing sector dedicated to solar, and that was great. And then China thought that they would get in on it as well, and their subsidies were uh, more significant, and their wages, wage demands were slightly lower. Um, and so they were able to undercut at incredible scale. Um, and so they they really drove the the cost declines that we've seen by building scale um, and cutting costs and, and developing the technologies. And so um, the European solar sector was wiped out to such an extent that um, there is not a single solar panel manufacturer in Europe today. There's one company that is pivoting to try and become one. Um, but that's it. So it completely wiped out the profit margins of any European solar manufacturer um, just because costs are falling every year. And it's what sort of cannibalistic competition where they're just desperately trying to undercut each other um, so quickly that no one is then making any money. Um, in terms of the sort of uh, the tension i guess between the private and the public sector it is quite an interesting one as you say i mean there are guys like jeremy leggett who i interviewed for beyond all three he describes himself as a social entrepreneur and the solar company he founded solar century um you know when he got the private equity backing for it the one thing that he stipulated that was an absolute must was that five percent of all profits every single year go to it a solar charity that he had himself also founded, which was just um, swapping kerosene lamps in Africa for solar panel or for solar powered lighting. Um, and so that charitable arm was a big part of the company and Solar Century is sort of for profit, but also for the charity and it's, you know, trying to survive in order to improve the world, but also trying to sort of show that solar can be a, a workable business model. Uh, and has done well it survived for 20 years through the booms and busts um but you know a lot of the solar companies are just trying to profit from solar and um they see it more as a business model maybe or whatever but if you're trying to compete in a business environment even if it's solar somewhat ironically you can't just be happy to lose money for the sake of the environment they're still operating in an economic world right um yeah. so yeah there's a an interesting, I guess, divide there in terms of what people think and what how businesses have to think. Um, but yeah, the the economics of the, the the underlying prices of the panels, it's just going to be really interesting to watch and really interesting to see how much of an effect that has on um, the pledges that a, a Joe Biden or a Boris Johnson have made. Yeah, I mean, you could be really cynical and say, oh, well, you know, all, because the government's going to be buying uh, so much of this material or they are going to be uh, coercing the private sector into buying so much of this, uh, you know, so many of these solar panels, for example, uh, that the solar, solar panel companies will be like, all right, well, we'll just, uh, we'll just raise our prices to, uh, to get as much as we can out of it. Um, I wonder if we will see any actual sort of almost overt conflict when it comes to um, public sector, private sector, when it comes to renewable rollout. Um, when it can, you know, maybe on something like price gouging, for example, or whether or not it will sort of remain, this will remain uh, almost as if these companies behave like state utilities. 
um, because you know so much often of their business is due to various tax breaks and things like that. I mean, the stakeholder capitalism idea, which I think is what um, your uh, your uh, your guest Leggett sort of is pushing for, is something that's certainly uh, is certainly being spoken about a lot more. I wonder if it's something that's actually going to get adopted more broadly. So, of course, similarly, we have here we have a solar energy company with sort of its own uh, with certain political inclinations. Uh, that is trying to prove that you can be, uh, you know, a, a, a business and yet still have sort of adopt social responsibility, uh, do a lot of charitable work and things like that. Do you think that's going to catch on much more broadly? Or do you think that this is something that will remain limited to these areas where uh, politics means so much? No, I've been thinking about this a lot. And, you know, you look back to sort of the Friedman principle of 19... 70 and we've been living with that for 50 years now and that was sort of saying the the ultimate goal or the prime goal of any company should only be to maximize profit for its shareholders and so uh especially in america you get a certain kind of of capitalism and i think around the world we're seeing votes for populists and we're seeing uh a lot of people what people think to be protest votes and um dissatisfaction um dissatisfaction no dissatis dissatisfaction <laughs> dissatisfaction hey i'm ill leave me alone um yeah people are very dissatisfied essentially with you know what you could lazily call capitalism but i think realizing that there's more than one sort of form of capitalism as we know it is important and the sort of the the, the intense freedmanism that we have now sort of been straddled with um I think is sort of reaching something of a zenith and we are seeing the reaction to that as you say with ESG um, with the rise of stakeholder capitalism which is very pop more sort of more popular in Japan um, and is something that I would favor and you know the climate campaign is going to be a huge part of that um, so yeah I agree that this is something that you know freedomism as we say took 40 or 50 years to to get to the place where it is today sort of dominating the the way that businesses operate um, so it's not going to be something that turns around in two or three years and suddenly every company is, you know, operating as morally and, and socially aware as, as it can. But I think that it's just a slowly uh, growing realization among people, among consumers, businesses, politicians, financiers that, you know, the, ex the sort of the non-financial costs of this world matter, the social and moral systems in which we operate, um, yeah, have a, a cost or have a financial merit as well um but there was something i wanted to ask you actually boaz because you started by talking about the the higher oil prices and i listened to the south bank live with john butt this morning and i wanted to ask it um so now's my chance and it's i wanted to sort of get your take on the view that higher oil prices are sort of could sort of accelerate the transition or sort of make renewables more competitive and electric vehicles on the sort of the cost of ownership model uh, more appealing as well from your perspective I guess is slightly more skeptical uh, of the transition than me or slightly more focused on the oil markets than me um, is that something that that you also buy into well if I were being really cynical I mean you could actually a cynical man could make the argument that much of uh, what is going on with OPEC and indeed with fracking 
um, you know, the frackers, the boys in Texas having, finding it hard to find capital these days. One could make the argument that the Biden administration itself definitely wants a higher oil price as it makes it much easier with high oil prices to push for a green transition as, of course, uh, green energy, renewable energy in general becomes much more feasible when uh, the base, uh, you know, the base form of energy is much more expensive. So uh, if you think that green energy is expensive, well, what if I told you that oil is even more expensive than that, right? It's much easier to make that argument. And so just as we saw very, very high oil prices in uh, in 2011, similarly, just as we were saying earlier, it was, uh, you know, solar was having a great time that period as well, because it was an alternative, which was, which appeared very, very feasible when oil prices are so high. So in theory, you know, if you I, I, I'm generally quite cynical. I imagine that there are people in the Biden administration who uh, are very happy with high oil, higher oil prices and would like them to persist as it makes it uh, you know, much more politically palatable to push for green uh, stuff. How far it actually goes when it comes to trying to push the oil price up is is a subjective debate. Uh, you know, so you know, is there someone from Washington that's uh, you know sp- spoken to a few banks and be like, you know what? You know, Chesapeake Energy, that big fracking company, you know, just don't buy their bonds as much as you would have, you know, whether or not there's anything like that going on, I, I have no idea. Uh, I think it, it extends a lot to the Middle East when you have, um, you know, this, this rift between the UAE and Saudi Arabia at the moment, with the UAE wanting to make more money because it made very deep cuts, uh, production cuts back in back last year. And so it wants, having, you know, taken that damage to itself, it wants to make a decent return it, it, you know it feels it's owed that owed a decent high oil price that it can then plow loads of oil into uh, while saudi arabia is saying no, no no don't plow loads of oil up yet you know we're, we're trying to you know we don't want the oil price to go down yet we've got it in the sweet spot i imagine the the biden i i can imagine that being the biden administration's take to the middle east uh is one where they're actually okay with the likes of um you know so the uh, the houthis uh, bombing, uh, you know, well, but the Houthis running, say, drone, att- drone attacks on Saudi oil refining facilities. I can imagine there being people in the Biden administration who are, who are all right with that because they want the oil price to get higher. So emboldening Iran, emboldening the Houthis in order to cause a lot of chaos with the major oil producers in the Middle East in order to get a higher oil price is in it could in, is in some way is beneficial to so many sort of interests when it comes to the American establishment. Not not to mention the frackers themselves, right? I mean, it, it is it is now good for America to have a high oil price because they are now an enormous oil producer. Whereas previously they were just simply a massive oil consumer. China has taken that place now. America now produces loads of oil, so high oil price is now good for America, right? It thrives on chaos. So uh, just like uh, you know, Ru- Russia was the classic country where you know it's a it's a it is a country which is uh, it is strengthened by chaos in the Middle East as this makes oil prices higher. Russia being a massive oil producer, then yet then reaps a dividend, you know, a chaos dividend from that. America now has that title as well. So in a way, America benefits in some ways, at least. It's still a massive energy consumer, of course. But it benefits in some ways from there being higher oil prices in the Middle East. And now, not just from because the, the frackers get loads of money. Uh, so, you know, the, loads of, the frackers get loads of dollars. Uh, but also now because <laughs> the administration itself wants to, wants to get rid of fracking and needs a higher oil price in order to uh, make the case to get rid of it. 
Uh, so I think there's there, uh, there's a massive myriad of competing interests here. However, for, if I were in the Biden administration, I would want oil prices to be high, not only because uh, in some ways it, it benefits uh, our own economy. Of course, yes, high oil prices do choke growth. But high oil prices, uh, they benefit you know, the frackers, they benefit the green agenda. They also tie into higher inflation statistics, which in turn uh, end up creating higher oil prices themselves because inflation statistics are made up so much of energy. So there's, I, while there are, are so many competing interests when it comes to Washington and what the Americans want, uh, if, I were, uh, I, if I were in the Biden administration, I would want there to be higher oil prices. That would be my, that'd be my case, especially if I wanted to push for a Green New Deal. Uh, but uh, that was quite a long, long-winded answer, Kit. But have answered your question. You have, Buzz. And then uh, just, yeah, I guess one more thing from me before we finish off that I'd like to get your views on is is on OPEC. I mean, the UAE's tensions, I see as sort of being, yeah, they're not going to be unique in terms of the transition having uh, really awoken in the last year or two. I think. Um, a time is going to start coming when a lot of the, the oil producing nations that are a part of OPEC and that together agree on sort of production cuts and on not selling their reserves too quickly, um, when they're going to suddenly start to really realize that they're probably not going to be able to sell all of that oil before the world stops really wanting it. And they're going to start wanting to really just sell it while they can and I think that there will be a couple of first movers there who just start ignoring the rules and really dumping it on the market and I think that will be a sort of an interesting moment um is that something that you you also see well to call it an interesting moment were that to happen were one of the OPEC group to suddenly uh, just say you know what screw it I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pump till the cows come home 24 7 just to get rid of all of this stuff before everyone else does I I'd call that an interesting moment I think that would I think it would be really quite a uh, hmm, a very intense moment I mean that's the kind of thing that uh, that that leads to war in an area of the world where uh, war is really not uh, not well it's, it's really quite common especially throughout history so uh, I, w- I would be, I do wonder what the future of OPEC is. I would be hesitant to think that uh, a member of OPEC would do that as it would destroy regional, st- regional stability because ultimately oil revenues are mean so much to uh, the political stability of uh, you know, the, the governments that exist in the area because oil revenues is such a big thing. So for somebody to do that uh, would be offending so many others and risking the stability of so many other governments that I think it would be too too high risk a move. I think I'm I'm more skeptical with oil not having a use. I mean, there I think there is something in supply side economics where if you have enough supply of something, somebody will inevitably find a use for it. I think hydrocarbons still have a huge use. Maybe if we get uh, some kind of the energy transition really accelerates a lot, then maybe then a lot of that may go away. But I think, you know, I think the likes of India, for example, uh, and and China still, uh, even though China is going very heavily renewable, I think the um, the growing, uh, you know, the growing middle class in India alone, let alone the the growing purchasing power of the of the lower class in India, they all they want they want cars, uh, and I don't think they want Teslas either. I think they're. I think they're going to want it. So I think the what here, you know, we here we are in Western Europe, 
and uh, you know people like to like to have a Tesla. It's a, a status symbol here. I think uh, over over in the emerging parts of the world, hydro, all of the oil demand that is removed by people over here going for electric cars will simply get taken up. Uh, if not even more so by uh, the 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 you know the new entrants, the growing middle classes in these emerging parts of the world. So I think we're we're going to see there's going to be a lot of oil demand still to come that's yet to arrive to market from those areas. So that's my uh, I, I'm I think the the death of oil has been uh, has been quite greatly exaggerated as the as the as the saying goes. But you know we'll wait and see. We'll wait and see. And of course I am very biased as I am of course. From from Aberdeen. But Kit, we have uh, we have rambled on for quite a while this podcast. Do you have any closing remarks you'd like to give to our listeners? Ah, uh, no, it's just a pleasure to speak to uh, speak to another human about finance again, Baz. It's been too long. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for hosting. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. And I'm sure uh, all of our viewers and myself, of course, wish you a very speedy recovery, Kit. Uh, it has been. Uh, thank you for taking the time uh, out of your uh, out of your schedule for recovery to to take a look at the markets once again. Uh, but there you have it, folks. That was the uh, Exponential Investor Podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. Of course, uh, you shall be. We shall get back to our normal schedule. You shall be hearing from Sam Volkering and uh, Kit Winder, as of course regularly on on the Fridays. I am just standing in for Sam at the moment, but we shall return to it normally, and we'll see you then next time. Bye bye. <laughs>